Turn, if you would, to John chapter 21. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read um, verses 1 through 14. John chapter 21, verse 1 says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the nets were not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray again. Father, I pray that you would feed us today. Give us the nourishment that we need from your word. Help us to understand these things. I pray that, um, that I would be clear I pray, Lord, that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When Christian uh, disciples consider the mission that Christ has given us, that mission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, as Jesus said at the end of Matthew 28, When we consider that mission, we have to, often at least, we have to confront a couple of challenges that sometimes cause us these challenges, sometimes cause us to to shrink back or to, to fall back or retreat from the mission. The first challenge often is our own sense of unworthiness, and the second is the cost of actually fulfilling the mission or going out and participating in the mission. So when our family first left New Hampshire so that I could go to college at Cedarville, I had no idea that God was um, going to use my time there at Cedarville to prepare my heart for ministry. I'd known, for example, um, the extent of the sacrifices that my family would make or would be making so that I would be able to serve Christ and 
and his church as a pastor. I, I, I don't know that if I had known those things then that I would have gone through with it. The summer of 2003 was the summer that the Lord confirmed to me through a series of events, a series of people in my life, um, that I was headed for the pastorate. But my biggest struggle, my biggest apprehension to doing that was that I knew me, and I was afraid that other people did too. I knew that I was unworthy to be called a pastor. Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul believed the same thing about himself, really for worse reasons. He wrote this, he said, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. As Christians, we struggle with unworthiness because of the times that we lapse back into unfaithfulness to the one who is faithful for us and to us, right? The one who has sent us. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, he was aware of his own unworthiness as a young man, he was wrestling with the nature of, uh, of salvation and faith, and, and he was presiding over his very first worship service. Now, he was a monk or a priest, and so this was a Catholic mass. And as Luther approached the altar to begin the service, he became paralyzed with fear. And historians will later record that, that he recited the following words, we offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And then suddenly Luther froze. He couldn't go on. He later wrote about this experience, um, the experience of his crippling fear in worship leading. He said this, he said, At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall a miserable little pygmy say, I want this, I ask for that. I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. And likewise, I could say, for I am the least of the pastors, unworthy to be called a pastor, for I am dust and ashes and full of sin and have sinned against the living and eternal and true God. Or even, for I am the least of the Christians, unworthy to be called a Christian, right? Our first challenge as we consider the mission um, that Christ has given us is that we need to understand that we are unworthy, and that it is only Christ who makes us worthy. But we also struggle with the cost. The cost of the high price that we might have to pay in order to follow him. Another good German theologian, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was aware of the cost. And he refused to stay in his safe haven in America where he had taken refuge in 1939 and instead, he returned to the German homeland, which was by then, as you know, ruled by Adolf Hitler. 
And so during the war, Bonhoeffer worked at teaching pastors in an underground seminary because the government had banned him from teaching openly. But after the seminary was discovered and closed by the SS, the confessing Lutheran church um, of which he was a part became increasingly reluctant to speak out against Hitler and the Nazis. And as moral opposition proved increasingly not effective in, in, in changing attitudes toward Hitler's regime, Bonhoeffer began to change his strategy. See, up until this point, he had been a pacifist, and he tried to oppose the Nazis through religious action and, and moral persuasion. But now he signed up with the German Secret Service to serve as a double agent. And so while traveling to church conferences throughout Europe, he was supposed to be collecting information about the places he visited, but instead he was working to help the Jews escape Nazi oppression. And he also became part of a plot to overthrow and later to assassinate Hitler. In fact, that was a plot that would cost Bonhoeffer his life. But it was during that time that his tactics were changing. When he traveled to America to become a guest lecturer, and yet he loved his country. And within just a few months of his arrival here in the United States in the late 1930s, he wrote a letter to another theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, and he said this, he said, I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I, have, I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. This decision would, to return to Germany would, would cost him his life. But in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer also wrote this. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, Bonhoeffer says, he bids him come and die. So the closing chapter of the gospel according to John is the epilogue. Um, an epilogue, according to Merriam-Webster, is a, a concluding section that rounds out the design of a literary work. And John chapter 21 does just that. So as we saw last week, the final two verses of chapter 20 make a, a fine and fitting conclusion. It concludes both the accounts of the resurrection appearances there in that chapter, but also really the book itself as John summarizes his purpose for even writing his gospel. So just look at these verses again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The good news has been proclaimed, John says. 
These signs have been given. Jesus has been glorified. He has risen and he has sent his disciples. He has sent his church to proclaim the gospel. But now John adds this epilogue here in chapter 21, this longer conclusion that's much more personal for at least some of the disciples, but especially for Peter. And we will get into that really more as we see this chapter play out here in a few minutes, but also next week, Lord willing. In fact, as the narrative of John 21 unfolds, we're actually given further insight into Jesus' relationship with his disciples. And one of the most important or, or prominent um, insights that we see here is the restoration, we'll see this next week, but it's the restoration and, and reconciliation of Simon Peter, especially as he is given the command to shepherd, to feed and tend the sheep of Christ's sheepfold. We're going to lovingly see in these last, the next section of verses, we're going to lovingly see Jesus uh, restore and reconcile with Peter. But another, maybe a little more subtle insight that we can see in John 21 is also the relationship of, of Peter and John. Uh, we see just a glimpse of that here as John says, it is the Lord. I picture John saying that with shock in his voice, maybe whispering it as Peter hears what he says, it is the Lord. But there is clearly a relationship between these two men that we will see unfold, especially in, through the early chapters of the book of Acts. That's a theme that Luke will pick up on. They will be tied together as partners in the gospel. And there's another insight. And in order to understand this, I think we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the original readers of the gospel, those who would have received this for the first time. Now, here's what we need to remember. This book was most likely written well after many of the other New Testament books were written. Probably it's the last gospel written. If Mark is the first, probably. John is probably the last one written. Written several decades after the fact. Paul has done much of his writing already. It's possible that many churches have copies of several of the letters as the scriptures are being compiled. They no doubt have heard of Luke's account and the account of the book of Acts. And then they received John's gospel. And history tells us that Peter had probably already died by the time John picked up his pen to write this book. And so when John talks about Peter through this, he does so not only to tell the story, but also to remind the readers of Christ's sovereignty. They would have known how Peter had died. History tells us that he was put to death. In fact, most likely crucified upside down because he felt like he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way that his Lord was. They would have known how Peter died. And John is writing to remind them that Peter did not die in vain. 
God had done all of this. In fact, he had said to them, back in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Jesus said to the disciples, including John and Peter, he said, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes that you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, he says. Here's another insight as we think through this chapter. Here on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, same place. Here, even as, he, even as he was before his arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus is one step ahead of the disciples. Well, He's infinitely more steps ahead of the disciples, but he's at least one step ahead of the disciples and he continues to meet their needs. He provides for their needs. He continues to serve them. This is a lesson that the church will continue to need to be reminded of throughout history. We need to be reminded of this in our day, don't we? That Jesus is going to continue to provide. He's one step ahead. He's an infinite number of steps ahead, but he's right there. He knows what's going to happen. Do you know that Jesus knows what 2021 is going to be like? He knows what the last month, last three weeks of December are going to be like. He has ordained these things, and he's going to continue to provide for our needs, and he's going to continue to serve us and pray for us and intercede for us even as we serve him. And then our final insight here, and then we will focus on these verses individually. But this final insight as we think of the big picture of this epilogue um, is that we're going to see, even, even really throughout the whole chapter, but especially in this section, a glimpse of the mission of the church. A glimpse of the mission of the church, or maybe a continued glimpse Remember, they were given the mission, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you, he said to them. And then the first person that they came across, Thomas, who hadn't been with them before, they evangelized, they said the good news to, we have seen the Lord, and he didn't believe them. And he didn't believe them until Jesus intervened. And when Jesus intervened in his heart, he said, what? Don't, unbelieve, don't disbelieve, but believe. Believe. And immediately Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God. Jesus intervened and saved him. But the disciples were faithful. Well, this is going to be a continued glimpse of this. And so this epilogue is about mission and discipleship. John chapter 21 is about obedience and work. It's about revelation and spiritual nourishment. This is about grace and steadfast love. And so that's kind of a big picture look at the chapter. But today we're going to be looking at just these first 14 verses, which, as I said, gives us a hint or a glimpse of the mission of the church. Actually, that's probably not quite right. This is more than just a glimpse of the mission of the church. It's an illustration or even a a living parable of the mission of the church. And in order to understand this parable... We need to remember an event that happened at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 4 
verses 18 to 22, records for us this. Matthew 4, 18 says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, again, this is the same body of water, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And such was Matthew's account of how Andrew and Simon Peter and James and John came to be disciples of Jesus Christ. But now we fast forward three years to near the end of Jesus' ministry, and we find them as fishermen without fish. Okay? Let me lay out for you the very kind of a, a literal outline of these 14 verses. For those who like to take notes, let me give these to you, and then we'll go through each one. The first is fishermen without fish. It's verses 1 to 3. Fishermen without fish. Then we see disciples without Jesus in verses 4 to 6. Fishermen without fish, disciples without Jesus. Then leaving the fish behind, verses 7 and 8. So fishermen without fish, disciples without Jesus, leaving the fish behind. And then verses 9 to 14 is being fed by Christ. Fed by Christ. So fishermen without fish. Look again at verses 1 to 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. In another appearance of the risen Christ to his own people, we find the disciples back where they started, back at the Sea of Galilee. They've gone home. They're back doing what they had done before. So Jesus has now appeared to them as a, as a group twice, okay, in John chapter 20. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, then he appeared to the disciples on two successive Lord's Days. Uh, Thomas was there for the second one, but not the first one. And now he meets them in Galilee. And as we were reading through John's Gospel, it, it might be a surprising development. All of a sudden, they're at Galilee. They'd been in Jerusalem, now they're back in Galilee. But to the disciples, this wasn't unexpected. Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, records what Jesus said to the women that he appeared to. So Matthew 28, 10, Jesus says to, these, to the women, he says, uh, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus had instructed them to meet him here. He's bringing them home. He's bringing them back to where he had found them as a way probably of, of reminding them of their mission and his kingdom. So previously, he had met them in Jerusalem as they assembled to worship on the Lord's Day. But this time, he's meeting them out in the world, even beyond the confines of Jerusalem. He's meeting them out of the shadow of the temple. He's meeting them in their workplace. It seems that this time... It seems like John is recording that there are only seven disciples present, but the focus is clearly on Peter 
and to a lesser extent on John. But consider the scene and the list of names that John gives us there in verse 2. They're not, think of the scene first. They're not hiding in fear behind locked doors anymore. They're no longer afraid. They have seen the risen Christ twice. They've gone back to work. See, whether they understand it or not, they are doing what the New Testament instructs us to do. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10, 11, and 12, he said this, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. They're working. Christians are called to be diligent, self-sufficient workers. And here we see these men doing just that. But we also should notice that, that in the list of names, we can see the character of the church as well. You should take comfort in this list of names. The church has always been made up of those who have spiritually failed in one way or another and, and nobodies. We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 earlier. The insignificant, those who are not born of noble birth. In this list, we find Peter, the denier. We find Thomas, the determined unbeliever, previously determined unbeliever. We find Nathaniel, the local boy. He's from Cana in Galilee, but he hasn't said a word in John's gospel since chapter 1. We find the combative sons of Zebedee, otherwise known as the sons of thunder, James and John. And then two others who are so far in the background that they're not even named. James Montgomery Boyce said of these, peop- these men, these disciples, he said, these are the ones who do Christian work. Normal people with all the failings we are heir to, not fictitious characters of superhuman faith and fortitude. I think this tells us the mission or the character of the church. Peter, the denier. Thomas, the determined unbeliever. Nathaniel, the local boy who's not saying anything. The sons of thunder. And then a couple others who are kind of blurry and in the background. I would say this, beware the super Christian. Beware the super pastor. Beware the super minister. But these disciples are assembled here in Galilee and they are unified as sinners who have been cleansed of their former sins by Christ's atoning death and they have been renewed by faith in their risen Lord. They stand there redeemed. Jesus has looked them in the eye and he has said to them twice, peace be with you, peace be with you. And then we get to verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, should Peter and the others be blamed for going fishing? Are they confused, lost, desperate, as some have kind of portrayed them to be in these verses? Or are they just hungry, (laughs) literally, Do they simply need to go back to work in order to support themselves? 
They didn't go to Galilee to fish. They were waiting for Jesus. He had sent word through the women. Mark tells us that earlier on the night that he was arrested, in Mark 14, verses 26, 27, and 28, we read this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See, the reality of the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection are still sinking in. They've been sent, verse 21 says above. But what does it look like? Where do they start? Surely Jesus will give us some more info when he gets, he's told us to meet us in Galilee. Surely he will give us some more info. And we know that he actually does. Matthew 28 tells us that. He sends them from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. But for now, they are waiting. And Peter is not known for his patience. And so he decides to go fishing. And the others go with him. But remember, I, I said that this is like a living parable. And Jesus has told them three things that relate to this moment. He has said to them, I will make you fishers of men. He has said to them, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And in John chapter 15, verse 5, he said to them this. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He tells them three things that relate to this moment. I will make you fishers of men. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, and apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is the first clue that Jesus is sovereignly using this as a sign, a parable, a lesson, to remind them to depend on him. And we need to remember this. We need to remember the futility of laboring to build the church according to our own wisdom. We need to remember that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But there's one other image here that we should see. So, they have fished all night long and caught nothing. But look at the image, the transition between verses 3 and 4. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. This is a transition from night to day, from darkness to the light of dawn. Remember that important tr truth that John started with, an important truth that is woven all through John's gospel, and that is from chapter one, verse five, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So look at this transition to the dawn as the sun comes up and there's Jesus in verses four, five, and six. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. This is and I'm kind of calling this sort of tongue-in-cheek, disciples without Jesus. At this point, they don't know who he is. Now, we don't know if this is another instance of the disciples being supernaturally prevented from recognizing Jesus, 
or if it was just because of the dim morning light, or if the sun is in their eyes. But regardless, John tells us that Jesus stood there on the shore and called to them. Now, most of the best translations of the scripture there use the term that Jesus called them as children. Most of them say that. I think the NIV says friends. But children is actually a pretty literal meaning of what he said. But sometimes we can read that and think that it sounds a little insulting, that it sounds a little degrading, but it isn't. So a good way to think of this in modern terms is if one of the guys stood on the seashore and said, hey boys, have you caught any fish? This is a term of um, familiarity. You can see why the NIV translates it friends. But it's a little bit more than that. It it literally means children, but he's really saying, hey guys, hey fellas, hey boys, have you caught any fish? But here's part of the interchange that I think is hard to understand. These were professional fishermen. Why would these professional fishermen, at least some of them, why would they listen to this stranger? Now, I'm, I'm not a fisherman. Um... There's a lot of things I'm not, actually, and I'm not a fisherman. I know some of you are. I'm not a fisherman, particularly not with nets. And so maybe there's an element of, hey, did you try that spot over there? That's my lucky spot. Cast it this way, maybe. Or maybe they're frustrated and and willing to either humor him or, or, or try anything at this point because they're hungry. That's why he went out there to begin with, and now they went all night without anything. But at any rate, these fishermen followed his suggestion and immediately they saw results. Immediately they saw incredible results. Now remember, this is like a living parable. When it came to fishing, when they followed the Lord's leading, when they heeded the Lord's instructions, the, they saw results that they, where they previously had failed. See, the problem wasn't the lack of fish. It was the lack of Jesus. Just like with Thomas. They needed Jesus to intervene. Again, this really isn't about the fish. In fact, there's sort of a word play there. Jesus kind of downplays the fish when he tells them to cast the net on the other side. He says, you'll find some. Focus isn't on the fish. This is about the mission. This is about being fishers of men. Listen to another similar story. This is another account, something else that happened in the life of the disciples, similar to this one. Turn back to Luke chapter five. I wanna read verses one through 11. This is a different moment Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Luke tells us, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when, he had, uh, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Neither of these are about fishing, are they? Neither of these events are about fishing. Sure, what these things do, what these stories, what these accounts do, is they, they show us, they illustrate for us Christ's power over nature, but this is about building the kingdom of God. Remember, without Jesus' intervention, Thomas refused to believe the word proclaimed by the disciples. With Jesus, when Jesus stepped in and commanded Thomas to believe, he found his grace, Thomas found Jesus' grace to be irresistible, and immediately he confessed, my Lord and my God. Can you see the connection here between chapter 20 and chapter 21? Can you see that this is a living illustration, a living parable? Without Jesus' intervention, no fish. With Jesus, the fields are ripe for harvest, to mix the metaphors. And this is the second, really, lesson for us here. See, the first was that, that not only do we need to remember the futility of laboring to build the church according to our own wisdom, that apart from Christ we can do nothing, but we also need to remember that those who labor in obedience and dependence on Christ will enjoy his power and provision. They will enjoy his power and provision. See, when it comes to being fishers of men, when it comes to fulfilling the great commission, it is true that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And it's also true that with Jesus, he can do more than we can ever ask or imagine. Because he's not working to attract a crowd. He saves souls. Now let's leave the fish behind here for a minute. Verses 7 and 8. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off, leaving the fish behind. John himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved, recognized what had happened. Remember, he was there the other time that they caught so many fish in Luke chapter 5. Luke is specific about that. The sons of Zebedee were there. And he proclaimed when he saw this, when he saw this net so full of fish that they couldn't even haul it into the boat, he proclaimed, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. You're going to often see Peter and John together like this. This is a good glimpse of the fact that John, John's a quick thinker, and Peter's a quick actor. Um, and, and just as, as an aside, 
as you read the next section there, I want to acknowledge that it's odd that Peter would put on his outer garment to jump into the water. <laughs> um, maybe he was just didn't know what else to do. Uh, probably it means that he wrapped it up tight against himself. Uh, but regardless, there was nothing so important to Peter as being with Christ. There was nothing so important to Peter in that moment of his life than being with Jesus. And his desire to be with his Savior sets, really sets us up for what will happen throughout the rest of the chapter. It sets us up for his desire for reconciliation. We can see in his heart, through his actions, his repentance and we will also see Jesus' forgiveness. But John's still in the boat. And so he writes verse 8 to remind us that this is an actual eyewitness account. He bailed out and swam and let us bring the fish to shore. Peter left them to struggle with the fish. And to kind of keep going for just a second with the parable, John is going to be left to continue fishing for men after Peter's death. And it will be a struggle for John as he faces persecution, as he faces exile on the island of Patmos. It will be a struggle for him while, until he is able finally to join Jesus. But that's sort of a, an aside. What we are supposed to see here is that Peter eagerly, abruptly, quickly leaves the fish this is where the, the parable starts to shift on us. He leaves his old life behind. I picture those words of Jesus ringing in his ears as soon as John said to him, it is the Lord. I, I picture Jesus being, or Peter being reminded, I, I, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When he tried to pull the nets up onto the boat, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But before Peter and the others can be sent off on their mission. There were a couple of other things that needed to be tended to. Not the least of which was that they needed to be fed by Christ. They needed to be fed by Christ. Look at this last paragraph here, nine, beginning in verse nine. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. There's a couple things here to see. First is that the parable is kind of shifting. The fish are clearly kind of going back to being fish. Um, but really what I want you to notice is in verse 9 is that Jesus already has the meal prepared. 
Yes, he tells them to, to bring some of the fish, but verse nine tells us that the meal is already laid out for them. This is where it gets fun because Jesus loves metaphors. I mean, look at the next section, right? It's all about sheep and shepherding, except we know that it's not about sheep any more than this section is about fish, right? So Jesus actually has two different metaphorical fish here. There's the fish that he feeds them with, and there are the fish that they have just caught. Well, clearly, uh, for the fishers of men, these fish that they caught, which are great in number, yet that number is known because Jesus knows his own, those are men. These are those who will be saved. And what's interesting is that Acts records, there's a great number of fish here, so many that he struggles to get them onto the boat, struggles to get them onto the shore, and what happens when we see them become fishers of men in the book of Acts? And 3,000 were added that day. And 5,000 were added that day. And thousands upon thousands were added that day. And many more were added that day. We see this begin to come true. So that's what's going on with the fish. It's supposed to be encouraging. It's supposed to remind us of the picture. Again, here we are with the metaphors, mixed metaphors, of Jesus saying, I will build my church, uh, my church. Jesus is saying, I will do it. Jesus will build his church. Not you, not me. We're just the fishermen dropping the nets where he tells us to, right? But the second metaphor, and this is really uh, the personal one, it's that these ministers also need to be fed by Christ spiritually. This is the, the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary word and sacrament. Again, verse 13, Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Yes, he literally fed them. But the last time he fed them, the last time it reads like this, Matthew tells us, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus continues to serve and nourish and feed his people. He refreshes us through these ordinary means of gathering with God's people and singing his praise. He refreshes us through the ordinary means of praying together for our cares and our concerns, of bearing one another's burdens in prayer, of being reminded through the preached word of God of his promises and his steadfast faithfulness. Early in John's gospel, as a couple of John the Baptist's disciples were following him and wanted to, to know where Jesus was staying, he responded with, come and see. John chapter one. And even while the call to discipleship, as I said earlier, is, is take up your cross and daily and, and, and follow me, as Bonhoeffer summarized it, come and die, Jesus starts with come and see, he moves to come and die, but still through it all he bids us come and eat. Come and eat. Come and have breakfast, he says. The psalmist proclaims, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me 
all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The resurrected Christ is saying to you today, come and eat. Come and eat. He says this to us every Lord's Day. Come and eat. Rest. Sit down a little bit because the work is going to be hard. The work of participating in the mission of Jesus Christ is going to be difficult work. And so come and eat and sit and rest. He has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Let's pray together. Father, as we think of these things, and there's a lot going on, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that Jesus has prepared a table for us. That this isn't about fish any more than coming to the supper is about the bread and the juice. This is about Jesus Christ. This is about Christ nourishing us. This is a, a proclamation of his death until he comes. This is a, a reminder, the new covenant. His promises are faithful and true. That Christ gave his life for us. That his heart stopped beating. That his blood was shed. That we might come to you. Father, it is a proclamation that we can actually come and rest because Christ rose from the dead. And so as we come to the table this morning, Lord, it is our desire that, that we would come in a worthy manner, that we would eat and drink to proclaim Christ's death as those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved from our sins. Feed us, Lord, on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.